The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Olas Media or its sponsors. Welcome to From the Nest with Charity Jen. I'm your host, Jen Newmeyer. On this podcast, we have casual conversations with folks in the nonprofit field, exploring the success and lessons learned of topics like campaign tactics and mentors. Today, you get a chance to eavesdrop on my conversation with Lisa Harwood. She's the owner of By the Waves Charity Consulting in Dorset, England. And yes, that is a beach town. And yes, I am jealous. So we'll talk about Lisa's journey um, to consulting and launching her firm right before COVID. She'll also share her fascinating approach to selecting her clients, and we'll get some insight into her newest hobby. So stay with us. This is From the Nest with Charity Jen. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy Walter Ford with Marching Ash, and I'm here to tell you about one of the best range you can find on the market right now. I'm talking about the award-winning Farmer and the Fella. Now this brand is from Santa Rosa, so you know it's Humboldt County grown, some of the best. When I tell you they got premium pre-rolls, rosin, and flour, this is some of the stuff you don't want to I mean, look at the, this that thing that killed John Wayne. Look at that right there, gosh. This right here is the Lemon Cherry Gelato, one of my favorites that I smoke every day to make sure I have one of the smoothest afternoons I can ever imagine. Now you can find all these products at any March and location. I see you there. So it's hard enough to get by in the world. On top of that, not being paid right by your employer and being cheated out of overtime, being cheated out of the hours that you work. It's not fair. And if you're going through that, it's important to seek help. At Summer Shorts, they've helped thousands of workers just like you and me to recover over $100 million of unpaid wages. Go to summerspc.com to sign up for a free case evaluation. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very, very excited to have you on the podcast. And I know the listeners are going to just love hearing from you and hearing your background. So as we start off, let's um, tell us a little bit about, about you and your background. Well, Jen, I was never meant to work in the not-for-profit sector. I was never meant to work in charities. And I arrived in Florida in a little town called Vero Beach from my home country of the UK. I landed in the US and I worked for a TV station there, which is what I should have been doing. That's what I had done. That was my degree, right? Um, and then the March of Dimes happened. The March of Dimes Birth Defects Foundation landed in my heart, said, no, you don't want to work for a You want to, You want to come and work for a charity. And that's what I did. And that was back in 19, the early 1990s. And I never looked back. I have been in the charity sector ever since. So then I went to the American Cancer Society um, in South Florida. And then when I came back over to the UK, I carried on and worked uh, for Save the Children, uh, worked for the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, which is a huge maritime life-saving charity over in this country. So yeah, I got the charity bug and and it never left me. Uh, And now I run my own consultancy, um, working with not-for-profit leaders leaders in in the sector so it's been not for profit all the way and I have enjoyed every single minute of it and isn't that so funny I think that there are so many stories if not maybe most stories of people who have just sort of fallen into fundraising and they you know 
I, you know, I like, I like to say, I don't know of too many kids that grow up and say, I want to be a fundraiser when I grow up. <laughs> and, and I do love your story because I think that that's how it happens is, you know, we end up somehow associated with a nonprofit, working with a nonprofit, and then that becomes our passion. Yeah, it does. Although I think we were lucky, Jen. I mean, I, I sometimes I find myself now talking to much younger charity professionals and I and I'll say to them, do you know, when I first started working at the at the Pocahontas building in downtown Vero Beach with the March of Dimes, there were no computers in the office. And they, they look at me and go, how how do you fundraise without a computer? Like, how do you do it without mail merge and direct marketing and <laughs> stats and insight? And and we had to do it off gut feel and relationships and telephone calls and writing out paper slips and, and all of that at the time. And I, I feel like I was incredibly fortunate to be in, a, I suppose, the ground floor and the beginning of what I would say was the professionalization of fundraising. Because you're right, back then, nobody said, I want to be a fundraiser and walk through the door, you know, waving a little fundraising ticket. But <laughs> now I hear far more people saying, I want to work in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. I want to work in a, in a meaningful environment. I want to make a dent in the universe. I want to make a dent in a significant problem. So whilst I'm still not sure whether, whether people aspire to be a fundraiser, I do think that it is much more difficult now to um, accidentally land in a not-for-profit career because I think there are quite a lot of people now who aspire to that career, and rightly so, because it's a great, it's a great place to be. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree. And I think to equate the, even though it's not really an equation, but um, I think when I started uh, in the nonprofit field and in particularly in online fundraising and digital engagement, when when the platforms were new, you know, Twitter was just launching, Facebook was just launching, and there was such excitement and energy around that and building those communities. And so, you know, there there is always an evolution, you know, of how we do things. And um, it just is, it's interesting to sort of hear those journeys and, and how that has evolved over the years. I think it's speeded up now, though. I think I think back in 2016, Charles Schwab, World Economic Forum, said that technological change will never be as slow as it is today. And I think that's the difference now, isn't it, is that where it took 20 years, maybe, for us to really harness the power of technology in those in those early days, in a blink of an eye now, you have to understand. And I, I work with a lot of my clients around things like uh, crypto philanthropy, uh, digital, and digital platforms, different giving platforms and I think you really have to move quickly now because you it's it's a build and if you miss any of those early steps you can't you really struggle to keep up and one of the concerns I've got for charities these days is you have to move quickly you have to move fast and a lot of charity leaders are my age they're what I would call analog leaders they're leaders that are not digital natives we have to we have to try really hard to understand this stuff um, and yet we're leading charities in a digital world. And so I think that there's a real issue here for those of us who have come up the ranks and are my age particularly, but the, those of us who are not digital natives to remember that we, we think in a linear way, we think in a very specific way that is not suited now to um, future-proofing your organizations as far as tech is concerned. So I think we have to listen much more 
to younger people, the digital natives in our organization, than my boss certainly ever listened to me back in the day, because we really have to learn some stuff from them, particularly around tech. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. This is something that in my sector in public media is a real struggle as well for uh, legacy organizations that have, you know, their tried and true fundraising methods that may be starting to erode slightly, like making that pivot to, uh, you know, focus on digital relationships, on digital innovation, on testing. And as you said, like listening to those younger voices, it is a very new world and it, and it can be kind of scary for them. It can. And we've seen that happen during the pandemic, I think. I mean, one of the problems of the pandemic that the pandemic created for charities, as well as the high demand in some areas, uh, was was cash flow was on a knife edge for many organizations. And what what I, what worried me in, in that period was I saw I saw lots of charities disband their innovation teams to cut budgets. I saw lots of charities disband their, their innovation uh, and their experimental budgets at a time for, for me where I think they needed them the most. And, and I wanted to shout, oh, don't don't cut that, you know, cut something that you've been doing for a long time that is starting to go down. Don't cut something that is essentially the thing that will save you in the future, you know. And, and so I, I hope that they come back. I hope that those innovation teams um, are, are brought back into the fold and I hope that those innovation budgets recover but it, it was a shame to see some of those cut during the pandemic when I think charities needed them most. Mm -hmm. Yeah now I know in your sort of consulting um, role uh, you work with a lot of uh, different kinds of clients and so how do you approach those conversations and are there any any you know, uh, tactics or, or tips that you would have for talking to leadership about making those investments in digital? You know, what sort of just overall your experience with that? Well, it's a very small consultancy. It's me. And I, and I do have a couple of really trusted associates that I use as well. But I think for me, it's about being really authentic. And, and I am really authentic with clients. And, and I will always say to a client or a prospective client, if you want someone to come and help you keep things ticking over and shore up those areas that have been in decline for the past three or four years and actually are now in a terminal decline, probably go and find another consultant because that's not me. If you want to take some risks, if you want to to, to do something innovative, if you want to try something new, and if you want me to challenge your thinking on, on how innovative you're being, then that's great. Let's, let's have a conversation. So I think right from the outset, I'm not a consultant who will um, shore up and who will, as part of a, a longer term strategy to buy some time whilst a charity innovates maybe but i i'm you know i'm always really clear at the outset that that's not what i do um i i don't and so i'm much more interested in in helping charities to to, to plan plan something for the future rather than rather than keep a, a legacy from the past on life support because that that isn't going to help uh, and and i'm always really clear about that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to, you know, when you are sort of evaluating those clients and who to take on, you know, being a small consulting firm yourself <laughs> with a few others helping, you know, how do you go about um, making those decisions? I mean, uh, I know that before, you know, when we have talked, you, you had um, some really unique roles. You were an interim 
CEO, I think at one point. And, <laughs> and so, so how do you balance those requests and, and really, um, sort of analyze, uh, the, the client need to sort of match your skills and talents? So I have three, I, I always say I earn my salary in three different currencies. And the first one is obvious, it's money, because I have to pay the mortgage, right? You, you, have to, you have to live, you have to eat, and you have to pay your fuel bills. So, so I, have to, I have to be paid. Um, but, but the second one is, is innovation and fun. I, I've got to get paid in that. The client has to, has to pay me in innovation and fun. And then the third one is learning. So when a client offers me an opportunity to learn something that I did not know before I engage with that client, then, um, then that's great because it, it, it keeps the gray matter alive and, and it keeps you thinking. And so I, I kind of balance it out between those three, what I call those three accounts. Um, and and if, a, if a client can give me lots of learning, and lots of innovation and fun, then I might not charge them as much. If they give me absolutely no learning and absolutely no fun, guess what? You know that that. So I, it's a bit like a graphic equalizer, and I look at each client on that score sheet and say, this one I really want to take, and I'll prioritize clients on that basis as well. So a client that 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 can fill all three of those accounts is my dream client, and I've been really lucky over the past five years um, in that almost all of my clients have been able to fill those buckets, which has been fantastic. Oh my gosh, that warms my heart. I just love that. <laughs> so now you said five years. Um, so is it, was it five years ago that you decided to, to do, to go on your own and, and do consulting? It was. Yeah. And so how was that transition and that journey, um, you know, it like tell us a little bit about you know how you went about making that decision. It seems like a big leap to me. Yeah, and it wasn't the first time I'd made that leap. So I um I made that leap. Oh, I suppose ten years earlier. Um, when I had left my job at Save the Children, I decided to set up a consultancy. It didn't work. It, it didn't work, and I I just didn't have the experience, and I didn't have. I wasn't ready. Um, and so I went, I went into a, into another job and, and at the time that was so difficult because I really wanted to do consultancy and it, it just wasn't meant to be at that point in time. But on reflection, when I, 12 years later, when I came back and said, okay, I think I'm ready now and set up my business again, it felt completely different. It was completely different. And I was able to recognize the difference and know with confidence that, okay, I know what wrong feels like. And I know that this is not that. So I had confidence then, but I, I was talking to a friend the other day and saying, had I known when I set my business up in August 2018 that um, less than two years later, we would be slap bang in the middle of a pandemic, I wouldn't have done it. I would mm. not have done it. Even with that, that assurance that, yep, this feels right. It's OK. I would have been absolutely terrified and said, no, there's no way my little tiny fragile business at less than two years old would be able to survive that. And so I am so glad I did not have a crystal ball because <laughs> it was really during that period that I think I, I, I really, I really um, understood the power of of a consultancy that can work alongside charity leaders at one of the most uh, unprecedented challenging times of probably their career and and support them along the way walking shoulder to shoulder with them and i remember 
I suppose around about the back end of 2020 thinking there is nowhere I would rather be and there is nothing I would rather be doing than supporting. I had 10 clients at that point and um, there, there was nowhere I would rather be. And every single minute of every single day felt meaningful and every single minute of every single day felt like a really good use of my time. Uh, and so I'm really glad I couldn't see what was coming because I would not have taken the leap. And so I guess if I could go back and give myself some advice, it would be go for it, jump, don't worry about what's coming because you surprised what you could, you surprise yourself sometimes, right? And, um, and it was a, a really good growth experience for me during that time. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, yes, that's amazing. So now you had said that you had tried um, starting a consultancy a few years ago and, and that you weren't ready. Are there any sort of any nuggets of advice that you can that you would give to others who are saying, I'm thinking about going out on my own and and being a consultant? You know, are there are there a few things that you would advise them to consider before uh, before, um, you know, making that decision? Um, yes, I think, I mean, it's different for everyone, isn't it? But for me, and I really can only speak for myself, one of the things that I, uh, I live and die by really in this consultancy is that when I work with charity leaders, I do so from a place of experience. So um, I, I've got the scars and, um, and I understand where they are and I understand how they're feeling. And it was really interesting when I took the interim chief exec role at Jeans for Jeans, um, uh, which was a, a part time, two days a week. And I, I did that partly because it's a, a, it's a cause really close to my heart. One of my, the first campaigns I ever ran was Jeans for Jeans, Blue Jeans for Babies for the March of Dimes Birth Defects Foundation over in Florida. So to get the chance to be the chief exec and interim chief exec here, I, I jumped at it. But the other reason was that I, I was at that point starting to work with a lot of chief executives and I had never been a chief executive. And it was the one area where I thought, I'm not, I'm not advising from experience now. I've worked with chief executives. So as far as that, that, that is concerned, I am. And so taking that role as an interim chief exec post-pandemic, uh, just after the pandemic, um, and, and actually overlapping with some of the lockdowns was, was really, really interesting. And I feel that now, um, that 10-month period of being a chief executive in a difficult, in a difficult situation, in a difficult environment, um, if nothing else, gives me much more confidence to be able to work with chief executives now, because I can kind of look them in the eye and go, oh, I, I I've been there, you know, I did that. And 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 it, it make it, it helps with my empathy and it helps with my understanding of their situation. So always for me it's important to be coming at this from a place of experience. Um not necessarily from a place of um an intellectual understanding. That's important too. But on its own, for me, that wouldn't work. I would not have the confidence to be able to look my clients in the eye and go, oh, okay, so you know, and, and mm -hmm. so it, it, that's important for me. And it, it's the confidence more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about having the scars <laughs> along the way, um, because I do think as difficult as nonprofit work is, there is always something to learn in those challenging situations. Um, I was at a nonprofit where I had free, almost free reign to do very creative, 
um, innovative, innovative online campaigns and, you know, really had a lot of experience under my belt. And then when I started at a new organization, there was so much resistance and it was all about navigating those waters. So I love that, um, aspect of consideration, you know, what are, what are your buckets of experience when you're thinking about going into consultant work? Like just understanding even for yourself, like here are, here are my little, here are my little areas, yep. you know, that, that I'm really, that I'm really good at, that I have that experience that, as you say, I can look someone in the eye and relate to yep. what they're doing and give them advice. But yeah. equally, and, and I guess I, I go back to what we were talking about earlier on, it is important never to stop learning. So, um, yes. you know, crypto, I mean, I can I cannot lay claim um, to having a huge amount of experience in crypto philanthropy. At the RNLI, we were the first charity in 2014, which looking back now was very early to start taking donations in cryptocurrency, in Bitcoin anyway. Uh, and, and so I, I, I remember that, but I am still just like everyone else, quite new to crypto. So there are some things you can't have experience in because they weren't there when you were when you were doing that role or in that in that position. Um, and so that's why that third learning part is really important. You know, when I look at clients, because it is important never to stop learning. Uh, if it's important for me to come from a place of experience, then I just have to get on and get some experience right in crypto philanthropy. I have to start reading books. I have to start talking to people. I have to start doing pro bono. And one of the ways that I, I get experience is by talking to clients who might want some pro bono work. And I can say, I can't charge you for this because this is as new to me as it is to you. But if I do some pro bono work with you, how does that sound? Because I can get some experience. I can give you the benefit of the experience I do have. And together we can learn about this new thing. And that has worked really well. So I think, you know, that the, the, it is important to uh, move outside your experience as well and find a creative way to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And of course, that goes back to what you were saying before about your three buckets, <laughs> about making sure that your that those three buckets are covered in your in your consultant work. So I love that. One thing I want to do is I want to go back to uh, something that we actually had talked about even before um, the, the podcast, and that is um, the state of nonprofits um, today and the biggest risks to nonprofits that we see. I think that you and I are probably aligned on what uh, <laughs> what we <laughs> agree are some of the biggest risks, but let's, and, and we talked a little bit, just a little bit about this earlier, but let's kind of dive into that because I think you had some really great perspectives on what the biggest, big, biggest risks are to nonprofits these days. Uh, it's really important, I think, that charities, and we touched on this with innovation, but when cash flow is on a knife edge, and it is for many charities now, when they're being asked to deliver more for less, there is a real tendency for charities to um, to look down and in. So just look internally, look at what they've already, what they do, what they know, and and try and and optimize all of their existing activities as much as they can, and look at their short term and look at business as usual. And that is perfectly understandable, and to a degree, there is a, there is a place for that. But I think one of the biggest risks at the moment, and until we can get charities and nonprofits back on an even keel financially, is that's all they do, and what they what they don't do is they look up and out. Um, and I see so many charities planning in year, 
but but not planning two, three, four years from now. Now you we don't know what what is what is going to happen, what the world is going to be like in two, three, four years. So I think even when I say planning, I mean something very different to what you and I would have known as as planning ten years ago. It's about being agile and it's about um being lean uh, and it's about being innovative and creative, um, but still aiming at some very clear metrics and a very clear vision and a very clear set of aims at the end of it. Um, but that requires multi-year planning. That requires us looking up and out. That requires us not just embracing technology as a, as a tool, but being able to thrive as an organization in the technical ecosystem, which is much bigger than that. So I, I, I think one of the biggest risks is that we, we, we retrench back into year, year on year planning. We retrench back into trying to keep what we've got on life support. And we don't look up and out and we're not brave and we don't learn from other sectors uh, and we, we, we stay in our bubble. And I think that's one of the biggest risks that we've got at the moment in the sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the, uh, well, uh, among the, a few of the things that we've been talking about with um, some of some of our uh, organizations is really focusing on diversification of fundraising. I think that that comes right along with what you're talking about, you know, that multi-year planning, um, you know, looking at, you know, setting, carving out just a little bit of the, the budget and the time and the resources to explore something new, even though it might fail. I think there's also a real fear of failure, but yet you learn, you learn so much from, from that. And um, so, yes, getting organizations to expand. For sure. And I like I always I always work with my clients on an Ansoft matrix because I think, you know, you can you can proactively decide how much of your fundraising investment and risk you want to put in product development, how much you want to put in market development, how much you want to put in that top right hand quadrant, which is diversification. And therefore, you might lose that. And I think as long as you have some framework and some discipline around those decisions and you stay with them, you can you you can make sure that you always allocate some growth investment you always allocate some diversification and diversification does not happen overnight so if you're only just starting diversification now well you're looking two to three years from now before you really start seeing some of that pay off so I think you know there are, there are some charities that will run out of runway because they have not started early enough so I always encourage my clients to use the Ansos matrix two by two matrix and proactively allocate your fundraising spend and risk to those four quadrants uh, and then decide, um, you know, how much of that you're going to put in that high risk box. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with putting some of that in your high risk box as long as it's a conscious decision. It's not right. reckless. It, it's planned. Yes. Yes. I love that. It's not reckless. <laughs> it is planned. I think that's so important. So share with us maybe um, an example of a client or um, even just in your in your past, something that was that you saw as a really great success that you were just so personally gratified by that. It, it just is like if there were any shining example of <laughs> an organization doing, making the right budgeting decisions or um, cr creating, you know, a really great campaign or internal resources, um, because you have such a 
wealth of you know experience working with organizations can you think of a success story to share with us do you know whenever whenever people ask about success like that one of the things that um that they often want is the big bang right the yes. really big bang it's but true. one of the things i genuinely believe is that success is lots of little bangs success is a build of lots of little things and and i think i can point to lots i mean i mentioned earlier um the rnli was the first major charity to start fundraising in bitcoin and i remember at that point i remember other charities just looking at me and what are you doing why are you doing that in 2014 like well why not i mean it you know well you can't trace where the where the bitcoin are coming to i'm like so you know where every coin that lands in one of your cash collection boxes comes from right no of course you don't so you know you you do what you can do and of course now you look at the giving block and and you can get the details of the people who donate you know one of the seven thousand cryptocurrencies that they take on that platform so i think that things like that are really important because they they teach your teams that it's okay to um uh, to take a risk they they teach your teams that if everyone else is saying don't do it but you really think you've got something it's okay to say well let's just try it and see what happens so i think mm -hmm. there are little things like that um at, at the rnli you know we um we restructured uh, as part of a, um, a cost improvement program, but it was really a transformational restructure of fundraising where uh, fundraising didn't sit in one department. You know, we tried to, to embed it in the areas of the organization where those cases for support and those particular functional bits of fundraising would be the most useful. Um, it, it worked, bits of it, bits of it didn't. But again, you know, for me, that's a success because we tried something new and we kept the bits that worked and we didn't keep the bits that didn't. Um, and, and that was really a success. It teaches your teams to innovate. It teaches your teams to have a go. And, and once you remove the fear of trying something and you explain and you demonstrate to teams that you can put risk frameworks in place when you're trying something new and that you can mitigate risk and you can watch for those little triggers. I think for me, that's the biggest success you can have as a fundraiser. The danger of referring to success as the campaign that went really, really well and earned lots of money is that if fundraisers don't think that whatever it is they're working on will deliver that, they won't do it. So I, I'm I'm a, a bit a bit of a zealot about let's define success as how brave we were and how responsible we were in managing risk in a high risk situation and how well we evaluated afterwards and how well we do things differently as a result of what we've learned. So for me, I've tried to do that all through my career, sometimes more successfully th than others. So for me, I've tried to do that all through my career, sometimes more successfully th than others. But but that for me is a success. If you can if you can operate in that way and you can make your organization a safe environment for others to operate in that way, that's success rather than always being able to say, well, I won this award for that or this campaign went brilliantly or this campaign beat all records. In a way, that's easy to do. That's the easy bit, right? But getting an organization to be brave, innovative, without being reckless and creating that culture, that's a success. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was just going to say, like, 
creating like that creates such um, such a, a, a wonderful culture for people to um, feel like they can contribute, to feel like they can they, they can bring their ideas to the table, that there is, you know, that there is um, some freedom in that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And 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 that there is no recrimination if it goes wrong. I think in, in, in that kind of organization, it's 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 safe to bring bad news as well as good you know and and i think that's that's really important as well uh, and so yeah uh, the the culture is really important and creating the right culture particularly now i mean we've talked about uh you know one of the reasons i think that innovation teams have been disbanded is because nobody nobody nobody's really happy or, or those organizations aren't happy to embrace calculated risk within their organization with a view to calculated gain and 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 that for me you know the, if those organizations are going to hold up a, a direct marketing campaign that went really well uh, that they've been doing for years and they got a three percent increase this year on that campaign but they've closed down their innovation team I, i'm i'm not sure i can buy into that yeah yeah I think that is a great uh, uh, ending to our to our podcast, but I do have one other question for you. So tell us, Lisa, just um, what kinds of things do you enjoy doing on the weekend? Well, I have just started, and I say this: I, I when I was young, like young, young, so a child. I um, I was a writer. So from the age of about 11 all the way through to about 21, I wrote a weekly column for my local newspaper. I won some writing competitions. I had a play produced. I, and, and if you'd have asked me then what I would have ended up doing, I would have said I, I'll be a writer. But life got in the way. Uh, I, found, I found fundraising, which I adored. I found the charity sector, which I love. But I have just gone back to um, university here and I've just started a creative writing course. And I have found my love of writing again. And so you will find me at the weekend now writing um, because I'm being held feet to the fire to do 2,000 words a week as part of my course. And so it, it's really lovely. And I have found this love again that I had forgotten all about. Uh, so that's the thing that I, I'm really excited about at the minute. And of course, I live in Dorset, which is on the south coast of England. I go from beach to beach. I lived in Florida, in Vero Beach. Now I'm at Dorset. Got some of the most beautiful beaches um, and the warmest ones because we're all the way on the south coast. So who wouldn't go to the beach? Yes, yes. Oh, gosh, that's wonderful. And I, I think that that goes back to what you were saying about always learning. So I love that that you are doing that in your professional life as well as your personal life as well. <laughs> so Lisa, uh, share with our audience how they can get in touch with you, how they can um, learn more about your work. Um, you can get in touch with me by having a look at my website, which mm -hmm. is www.bythewaves.co.uk by the waves all one word we talked about the beach there you go um it's it, I, i'm living the brand aren't i but www.bythewaves.co.uk and you can just get in touch with me through the website okay that sounds great well thank you so very much for sharing your uh, wonderful knowledge and insight uh it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and um we will definitely be checking you out at your website thank you so much lisa you're very welcome and hopefully i'll see you stateside at some point and i can buy you lunch that'd be lovely wouldn't it yo
Oh, yes. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. <laughs> such a fun conversation with Lisa. I particularly love the calculation she has for selecting her clients, taking into consideration the skills she'll learn that could be of benefit to her in the future. And she really just lives by that lifelong learning motto. And um, I, I just love that she's writing again. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like more nonprofit fundraising resources, visit my website at charitygen.com, where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, access free guides, and learn more about my book, The Insider's Guide to Online Fundraising. This has been From the Nest, where fundraising takes flight. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Olas Media Network in San Diego, California. Jessica Garcia serves as general manager. Lena Alvarez is associate producer. Elia Ramos is creative director. JC Polk is executive producer and founding partner. And Chad Peace is our president and founding partner. Thank you for listening. Olas Media.